Is this call being recorded? This call is being recorded. My guest today is Mr. Edward Snowden. <laughs> I leak. I'll leak. I'm known to leak. Sometimes I'll even publish it. Open you always wins. I, I, you know what I think is the saddest part of that whole saga is is to find out that the NSA, who's supposed to be like the coolest spooks in the world, that that they communicate with the shittiest looking PowerPoint decks. <laughs> you know, like 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 when you see people making fun of PowerPoint. And they exaggerate what a bad PowerPoint deck looks like. That's what all of this NSA stuff looks like. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, in our bubble, so surrounded by good presentations and advice on good presentations and obsessing over making better and better looking presentations. I, I sometimes think that that's, you know, that bubble goes further than I think. And then I go somewhere and I see what people are still doing with... PowerPoint or, you know, keynote slideshows. And it's, uh, it's incredibly dispiriting, especially, you know, in, you know, I say in tech, but really in business too. It's, it's, it's appalling what people put up on a screen. I had to sit through one a few weeks ago that I, I, I really felt at a certain point, like they were testing me, like they were waiting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that there's a, you've probably done this in businesses where there's a deck that you have to adhere to. So it's got to have this certain look, you know, yep. cause it's all going to go into the same deck. And it was a, a huge graph of year-over-year change that each department had to use. And then you had to have in bullets below that everything you were going to do in the next year. And generally speaking, the worse the graph was, the more bullets people had jammed in, into there to compensate for what was going to happen next year. And what was that was a rule about, like, never have more than – I think this number goes down over time. So many words on a slide. And, I mean – it, there had to be like a hundred words on this slide, and they were all they were like sixteen points. It, it was completely unreadable. But yeah, you're I, right. I mean, a good spook should have a good deck, no question. It it sh- to me, I'm not even an expert. I mean, I'm not. A, a, I, I think the best talks that I give the last few years, I don't. I are the ones where I don't have any slides at all anymore. Like I think I'm actually better without any deck. Uh, I'm certainly not a, a you know an expert speaker. But my my rule of thumb is just that a, if you're going to put it up on a screen, it's it's like a, it credits in a movie. You can't expect people to read more on a screen during a talk than they would be able to read on screen in a TV show or movie. You can't put sentences up there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I think if you're just speaking from a tiny bit of experience, I mean, if you're giving the same talk a lot and you've gotten really comfortable with your slides to where you don't have to look, you know, use the note screen if you can get it. I mean, God, that's huge. I, I, if, I don't, if I don't get a note screen, my, uh, screen I'm very inclined to say I'm not going to do slides because I don't like looking over my shoulder like as though that's guiding me to, right. to know what comes next. But I think if you can do that and pull it off and then, but also not have it become stale, that's great. My feeling on whatever goes on the screen... I had a post about this on 43 folders a million years ago. I think of it almost like like the chorus in like Shakespeare or, or like a Greek play. Or better put, maybe it's like the word on Stephen Colbert. Like I, I want there to, to say that. Yeah, I want yeah. there to be a – never <laughs> – if you can avoid it, don't say what's on the screen. Obviously, don't read your slides. But, you know, an easy tip 
is, you know, first of all, I guess, <laughs> step zero, know what, what's on the slide without having to look at it. Don't use it to guide what it is that you're saying. But then, you know, it should, it should be something that provides context or contrast for what you're saying. I don't think it should be, it shouldn't be what you're saying, because uh, what's the point? But that's what people, I think that's what people do, because that's what everybody else does. I used to think this is because people are dumb. I think it's because of the culture. The, the, and I've, I've said this, and we had a whole Back to Work episode about this, the culture of presentations. I spoke at Pixar one time, and like I couldn't believe the setup there. I, I thought it was going to be something from NASA, you know, and I'd be able to go around in like a flying chair or something. I, I had to stand in this one spotlight with a stick mic off the stand. Uh, I did get notes view, but I, I, you know, I like to walk around. Anyway, I, I'm with you. Um, I watched Cable's presentation at uh, XOXO, Zoso, as I like to call it. And um, like Andy said in his waxy.org post, I think, I think it's a good example of how to do slides. If you're just going to have words, have giant, giant words that underscore what you're saying or contrast with what you're saying or provide a placeholder. If you are doing something that's very complex and technical or financial or something, you know, placeholders to let you know, okay, we're on, this is the third of my five points can be helpful. But, you know, people are going to sit there and read what's on there way more than they're going to listen to you. And it should tantalize them to listen rather than tantalize them to want to read more. Cable at XOXO. I'm going to put that. I, I don't know. What do they call them? Show notes. I'm Show notes. Yeah. In there. I, I don't even know if I've linked that at Daring Fireball yet. I should if not. It's it's almost heartbreakingly good. And it's amazing because he 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 hardly ever speaks in public. He spoke at like the C4 conference like four years ago. He's, he went like four years between giving presentations and delivered that. Yeah. Uh, so polished. And and I think the comparison to the Colbert, the word segment is so great. If you can do that, if you can work that out where what you're saying, you've got your own back channel behind you, it's it's so delightful to watch when there's even just one or two in your deck. If you can have like a little joke behind you, mm-hmm. you know, that you don't acknowledge in your um, remarks what you're saying, it's just a pure delight for the audience. And it really, it, I also think it really helps emphasize why, why, are, why am I here sitting in this room watching this guy tell me this instead of just reading it, right? Right. It's an experience yeah, instead just, of just... Just give, it, just give it to me in bullets. And this is right. evidenced by how many places I've done, prepared to do a talk, and then I get that dreaded email a week or two before the talk where they say, say send us your deck, because they're going to distribute the deck to the audience, right. which I always feel like is like handing a script to somebody when they're walking into the movie theater. It's like, you know, the thing is, you could read this, but it's really, it, it, I would be really failing fundamentally as a presenter if you were more interested in flipping through a three-ring binder while I'm talking. Right. You get a little binder and as you walk into the movie theater, and then you just flip to the last page. It just says, It's a Rose, sled! It's, it's a, a sled! sled. <laughs> How did I know? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I, I guess you could think of it, there's a that terrible word, but it's, it, it means something. <laughs> It's a sled, and he has fond memories of his childhood. Fail. <laughs> uh, but you think about like how, you know, if, if I were to say to you, think about how many of the great like sayings or cliches are, um, you know, like koans, like little like little riddles, or you say like the the three most important things in real estate are location, location, location. It's silly and it's a cliche, but you remember that because it's very clever. And it underscores the idea, let me clarify this, it underscores the idea that location is important in real estate. And it's it's catchy. Um, and, and I think what happens is when 
you get a higher level of engagement when you give people something, I want to say a puzzle, that's putting it too strongly, but when you give people something where they have to reconcile two pieces of data, I think they get more engaged. Now, the conventional wisdom, which is totally understandable, the conventional wisdom, as they say, again, to to paraphrase that, um, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And that's not a bad approach for speaking, but you can do it in a nuanced way. The, The trouble is when when people are, are getting started or even at the intermediate level, they do really still use their slides as their own notes a lot of the time. So for example, I mean, one exa- I, I, I'm not saying I'm great at this, but you know, I got, I'm probably in presenting best known for the inbox zero talk I did at Google a few years ago, which people have, some people have seen. And you know, I, I was, that was the first presentation I ever did where I was happy with how the slides turned out. And I was relatively happy with my performance and it contains a lot of these little things, and I think that's part of what makes it successful. When, I, when I, I'm in the middle of saying a line about how you need a mature system for email that you don't have to think about, and up comes a slide of a roll of toilet paper in a bathroom. Now, that's maybe not going to be funny to people, or they're not going to get that. But talk about a mature system. Could there be, next to like coffee, making coffee, is there any more mature, mature system than wiping your ass? Like if you had to think about that all the time, you wouldn't want to poop as much. And that, that delta makes people think. When I say to somebody, if you start living in your inbox, you're entering a world of pain, I throw up a slide of Walter Sobchak pointing a gun from the Big Lebowski, you get a laugh. You know, it, 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 you, don't, you don't want to be clever to a fault, but, you know, I'm guessing that the NSA is a very, I'm guessing the information is very dense in their presentations. You know, there's a lot of, did you ever read uh, Gar Reynolds' book, uh, Presentations Zen? No, I don't. Well, no, I did. I did. Yeah, ter- terrific book, terrible title. Uh, uh, features Inbox Zero in there, wonderfully enough. And it was very nice of Gar to put that in there. But, you know, I think that book is so good for people who have reached at least an intermediate level because it, it really shows you that you're putting on a show. It's not it, – when you think about – I think people start with the idea that I have to make a slide deck and then talk to the slides, whatever that means, you know – but if you get this idea that, well, there's your preparation, there's your performance preparation, yes, there is a, I would call it a multimedia component, because you can do video, you can do all kinds of stuff, you can have sounds, whatever, put it up there. But then, like, if you, if you have, like, a lot of dense technical information, for the love of God, have a PDF that you distribute after. And say, listen, just so you know, I'm going to cover what I think are the most important deltas in this. I want to show you some important contrasts and comparisons. You can get all of the data in this XLS format here. I'm going to give it to you, whatever. But, you know, nobody's going to sit there and read all the data in a table unless it's just to try and contradict you. Do you know what I mean? But I guess at the NSA, you know, I don't know. They had diagrams. It, it just it, – it, what strikes me – and I, 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 you know, I can't say that I'm following this stuff, all this Snowden NSA stuff super closely. You know, I, I'm not hyper obsessed with it. But I'm, you know, following along. And I've, I've looked at some of the decks that have come out. And the thing that strikes me is that it, there's no reason for it to be in the form of a PowerPoint deck, period. Like, presumably it represents some sort of, you know, at some point somebody was in there giving it as a presentation to fellow colleagues, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't even look like that. I don't even know. Like, maybe that's just, instead of actually writing memos and describing stuff, it's it's almost as though discourse in, in bureaucracies like that has devolved from, like, proper sentences and paragraphs to, to uh, you know, this gibberish, 
you know, it's like a pseudo English. It's it's like something out of uh, uh, what were the little people in in H.G. Wells' time machine called? Morlocks. Yeah, the Morlocks. So, like in in H.G. Wells' vision of the future, it's the <laughs> underclass, the people, you know, the 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 Morlocks under the ground who who you know uh, have sort of devolved. But like in reality, it's it's like the white collar world of people with good jobs, you know, working at like tops, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of big corporations, it's the same way. People who wear like nice clothes and suits and ties who who communicate in less than full sentences. Right. Well, every, I think every industry has jargon. You know, we, we have jargon. We say things. I heard, I was listening to a podcast in the shower and I, you know, as soon as I hear the word chamfer, all I can all I can do is I can just see Johnny Ive in his too tight T-shirt saying the word chamfer for the rest of my life. Whenever I that, that's jargon for me, like that will always be like an Apple jargon word, even though it had it had a meaning before, right? Um, but I I, I, I mean, this isn't this is an imperfect analogy, but the way that you and I write in Markdown and pass files through text, I I think that's kind of I kind of feel like. PowerPoint and PowerPoint thinking, PowerPoint presentation, PowerPoint culture. I'm not trying, I'm not really not trying to be dismissive. This is just an observation from being around businesses. I think that has become the way people communicate with each other, uh, even, even in non presentational environments. I was on, um, uh, let's make mistakes a couple months ago. And and Jesse said she had a client at one point, Jesse Char, co host of the show, said that. She had a client at one point who would communicate by e- by sending a, a blank email with an attached PowerPoint. Just yeah. so, you know, um, that's ex- see that that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, right. my my comments PPT, and you open that up, and it's a bunch of purple and yellow <laughs> in Morlock speak. <laughs> right. <laughs> Make logo bigger. See attached. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's it, you know every it, this is the problem with with. Um, uh, you know, buzzwords or that certain kind of jargon is something that has a certain meaning. It 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 becomes something we say so much. I you know, there's all kinds of. I, I it's become a tired joke for me to you know talk about opening the kimono and drilling down and all that kind of stuff. But you know, if, if you haven't been around that, that actually is still a way that people talk. I, I, when I go into companies again, I feel like I'm being tested. I feel like I, I'm so I'm arrogant enough to believe that they know how how asinine I find that to be. When you have a perfectly, I don't mean to be all like you know E. B. White, but like or William Strong, but like if you've got a suitable English word for something, say the word that means what you want to say. People make fun of me because I say costly instead of expensive. I don't say costly instead of expensive. Costly and expensive mean two different things. Costly means it costs a lot of money. Expensive means it costs a lot of money and maybe more than it should and may not be worth it. These words mean things, right? And so, you know, it's it's easy in a culture to slide into a place where words come out of your mouth so easily. They have a certain kind of meaning, but it's a flabby meaning, and but it is what's acceptable. You know, there are certain words that have a lot of uh, gravitas to them. And then there are, there's this whole cl- huge superclass of words that are that are real real uh, flabby, and it's okay if we use those a lot because that's how we talk to each other. Just like we always wear the same kind of suit to work, and I think that mm-hmm. becomes comfortable to people. Yeah. Whenever I want to get real depressed about the state of discourse and and language, I just reread uh, uh, Politics in the English Language. Is that uh, Orwell? Yeah, Orwell. 
You can and then and then and then you can you can really get depressed. <laughs> well, there there are two things that I because there was a guy there was a guy who explained everything that was wrong with the way politicians communicate. Right. What 60, 70 years ago? Like here it is. Spell it all out. Mm-hmm. Easily fixed, and it's gotten nothing but worse in every way since then. I think a lot of people would like to write that off as being an artifact of the time, something something Nazi, but or Stalin. I think he's probably more maybe more referring to Stalin. But but the, I think some people want to roll their eyes at that because they say, oh well, just because I speak in bureaucraties doesn't doesn't make me Stalin. But he makes a really good point, which is that when you get when you become imprecise about your public discourse, um, there's I don't know I, I I'll, I'll say this there there are two things that I I don't want to say make myself reread, but I find myself rereading and make me feel ashamed of how I write and really how I speak. And you can guess what the two things are. That the politics, what's it called? What's the name of the essay? I think it's Politics in the English Language, I believe. Right. And the other one is, we've talked about before, is On Writing Well by William Zinser. Oh, yeah. When I pick up that book, that book changed my life. And to me, it's something to aspire to. When I'm really trying to write something, write something that I really want to live for a while. It's tough in the age of blogging um, because, you know, 80% there is way more there than most people's there. (laughs) But, you know, if it's something that I really want to last, I try to exercise the restraint that William Zinsser counsels. And when you do that, your writing completely changes and you realize the imprecision to what you've been writing and saying. When you realize that something blah, blah, 10 pages could really be a page and a half long. It'll be fundamentally different than what you started out writing. It, and it will, it will say something very specific with very specific words that mean things. Uh, I'm, it, Zinzer's on writing well certainly isn't obscure. It, you know, it's, it's a you know, pretty well-known guide. But I'm, and I'm not the first to say what's the following, but, and, and I'm a huge fan of uh, the elements of style. Of E.B. White and, and Strunken White, if you you know, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of I, I've seen a lot of people who've said a lot of people who I respect who say that their their p- relative positions in the canon of you know read if you only read one thing read this should be the other way that Zinzer's on writing well is is it, more profound. You know, uh, I, and I think they go well together. Well, that's I, what I was, was going to say. I mean, I, I think it's. I think there's a really simple way to put this, a very plain way to put it. I will omit needless words. Um, every, maybe junior high, but I'll say every high school student should read the elements of style, and then be asked to demonstrate how they can put that, you know, into place in their writing. Right? I think that should be part of. I think you should read elements of style in high school, and I think. The summer before you start college, you really should read Unwriting Well. I think Unwriting Well is 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 it's going to make more sense if you've written a little bit in high school. I don't know if I would hand that to every high school student because they haven't had enough experience. But Unwriting Well, I think, functions best as a real splash of cold water. Uh, you know, again, I'm projecting. It was handed to me by. I think I told you the story before, but the everybody always loved my writing, blah, blah, blah. I, I can be real purple, and I was the features editor in, in high school, and I'm smart and talented. And it wasn't until my second year of college that the f- physics teacher, when I was taking physics for poets, told me how poor my writing was. And I was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Okay, sure. Guy from Hungary who's teaching me, you know, Baker and Einstein, yeah, you, you know lots about writing. 
And he was absolutely right. He sent me to the writing tutor, right? Me, the writing guy. He sent me to the writing tutor. And she kicked my ass seven ways from Sunday. She made me go back and re, she, she handed me a copy of, she, well, she pointed me to the bookstore and said, you're going to go buy this book on writing well and you're going to read it. And that's what we're going to work on. And uh, I've said this before, but I ignore that at my peril. I forget that at my peril. But I can't think of a better book. For, for somebody who has the basic tools and knows how to f functionally hammer some nails, like this is going to change the way you do your carpentry. And that's, I think that's actually his analogy in the book. He says it's, it's, it's like making furniture when you write. That's a great book. I'm, I, somehow I got well out of college before I'd ever been exposed to it, though. Like whereas elements of style, I don't style, think it's that well known outside of nerdy writing circles. Yeah, see, I you know, like I said, it's not. I wouldn't call it obscure, but it just doesn't have that ubiquity that the elements of style has, and I still think deserves. But somehow, I feel like I, I feel like Zinzer should be on the same pedestal. You I know, you know, I, I I'm going to say this one time, man. Uh, you know, when people piss and moan, people who sit around and regard themselves as great writers piss and moan about all the problems with Strunk and White, I kind of feel like that's criticizing CPR classes because you haven't become a medical student. <laughs> it's like, you know, you could do a lot worse in this world than reading the uh, the elements of style. And, you know, just, just even if you just go to the, um, what's, there, you know, you could even skip the sections on there versus there and stuff like that. But reading the section that includes omit needless words, that section that's, what was it, matters of style, matters of... Yeah. You know the section I mean. Yep. If everybody read that through and just, you know, it's a great starting point. You may not be able to do open heart surgery, but you might be able to save your dad from dying on a plane. That's all I'm saying. I, I think it's frustrating. It's a silly kind of backlash. It's one of those inside baseball things to me where it's like, you know, you know, you know, you consider yourself someone who knows enough about writing that you can be a real smart ass about a book that's helped that many people to at least know how to put together a sentence. And there are so many people that cannot put together a sentence that it's, it's appalling. It's sickening. It's uh, uh. PowerPoint. I blame PowerPoint. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. And I know that people. I know that it's a a, a frequent whipping boy. I mean, blah blah blah. You know, complain about PowerPoint is you know <laughs> overdone. But I do think I, I I do think there's some sort of there's a profound way that it's it's not just that it's abused. It's that it is somehow. Um. It's like shaping – it's the funnel through which all thoughts have to go. You know, like you said, if somebody commu literally communicates, no hyperbole, with, with just emailing a PPT, <laughs> then everything that they communicate is going squeezed through that funnel. And right. it's – it is – you might think, well, it's so rich because you've got color and fonts and you can drag stuff around on a page. Right. And, you know, and, and I think you and I, you know, clearly are both of the sort where really the better medium for communicating is plain unstyled text. Just a string of characters and punctuation marks carefully arranged to express your thoughts, you know, which is no color. It's really just uh, literally just a string of characters. It is, you know, no more than what you could have produced on a on a typewriter, except that you have the the. But it's like showing up naked, man. I mean, all, all of your flaws are laid bare when right. you have to write a clear sentence. Um, there's a band I like called Sloan, and um, 
they have a line in one of their songs about Consolidated. I don't know if you remember the band Consolidated. But they say something like, uh, it's not the band I hate, it's their fans. And I think, you know, this is going to sound reductive, but I, I think if you take any noun that everybody looks at as a problem, just try adding the words the culture of in front of that noun, and I think things become a lot clearer. Um, you know, it's, you don't really, uh, I was just listening to ATP and they were talking about, you know, enterprise software. Syracuse had a, had a great Grand Guignol rant about, uh, enterprise software. And, uh, and Marco kept talking about, you know, <laughs> people in IT organizations that hate Macs, capital M, capital A, capital Z. <laughs> and, and I think they don't hate Macs. I think they hate the culture of Macs. I think they hate the culture of Apple. Uh, it isn't that people hate Consolidated. They hate the culture of Consolidated. And I have to say for myself, there's nothing wrong with the binary that we call PowerPoint. It's the problem of the culture of PowerPoint. And the fact that it's become so ingrained, it's, it, you know, it's, it's easier to beat up on an application than it is to have some nuance about why that's problematic. And the problematic part is that it's, you know, it... <laughs> If that's, you know, it's like the hammer and nail problem, right? I mean, that's not the perfect medium for everything, but you will never get your ass kicked for handing somebody a PowerPoint in certain environments. Right. Whereas if you have to write three sentences that explain why your numbers aren't where they should be for the last fiscal year, there's a lot more room for people to to, to criticize, I think. it's It doesn't fit, you know, it's culture, I mean, you know, it's it's like hegemony, right? If you can, if you can tell what it is, that's not the thing. It's the thing that's in the air that we don't have to talk about and that we can't name and that we can't touch with our hands. That that's really the thing. That's what makes offices complicated. It's what makes relationships and families complicated. And I think it's you know what makes that PowerPoint culture so frustrating. And I, but I feel like a crazy person though when I go to those things. I, I feel, and I'm like you. I mean, I throw out my slides all the time. If I have the slightest indication that there's going to be any weird technical glitch, did I ever tell you the story about? One time, I think I told you this. One time, I went to do a talk somewhere. Nice people. Let me stipulate. Super nice people. And they said, uh, so you get your deck? And I was like, yep, I uh, got my deck. Okay, it's here on my Mac. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're trying a new thing this year. Go ahead and I'll put all of that to, uh, to a PDF. Put it on this uh, thumb drive. And then, uh, and then here's your clicker. And I was, was, like, this o- was this O'Reilly? <laughs> <laughs> they gave me an Emacs controller and I had to use cords. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had that experience speaking at an O'Reilly conference. Well, this was unusual. Now, I've right. been in places where I had my beautiful deck. I spent a lot of time. I, I went. I had great trans, subtle transitions. There were a bullet bullets, you know, bullet builds because I don't want the whole thing to just show up. You know, the whole nine. And if you if you, you can go in, and it's not that hard. It, it, if you're a real pro presenter, it's a good idea to have a PDF ready anytime, anyway. Yeah. But get ready for this. So I've been led to believe I could just use my laptop. No problem. So I'm going to get my note screen. I'm going to have all of this. I'm a diva. But the beauty part is I give that to them on the thumb drive. And the clicker that they give me is not a clicker that's connected to a PC somewhere. It's a clicker that turns a light on in the basement <laughs> that lets this person know to go to the next slide. <laughs> So even setting aside latency, like what if I accidentally hit it twice? What does he do? And so I'm sitting there in a bar the night before the presentation, <laughs> sounding like the biggest diva in the world. I was like, well, how would I let you know if I wanted to go back a slide? Like what if, so- what if something happened that I wanted to – what if I wanted to jump somewhere else? And, you know, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 
I sounded like a crazy person because that's that what I was saying was not okay in that culture. What's okay in that culture is we've got this. It's like as with enterprise software, we have this system that's going to work and not break, but not be great. But it's not going to break. And if if you just if you you know if you weren't Diana Ross, we wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> Have you done that? Have you shown up and, and, and like you show up with your MacBook Pro and you're ready to plug in and like maybe there's not a DVI or something? Have you run into situations where you had to scramble? You've been doing more speaking in the last few years. Yeah, but then I've kind of tapered off because yeah. I find it so stressful. I only spoke twice this calendar year. I, I did WebStock and then I did uh, Ool and I gave the same talk more or less at both. Um, at WebStock with slides and then at Ool without. And I think the at all it went better. Now maybe that's because I gave it a second time. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that was what it was. But no. But the last few years, though, I've been going to places that are so um, designery rather than nerdy that they're really ready for your Mac, your MacBook. You remember that you at Webstock? I mean, like I, I had some glitches with mine. Just. I don't know. Probably I, I'm cursed, but um, but it, that was a pretty sweet setup they had. They, they, that was two years ago, three years ago, something like that. Yeah, they haven't yeah. had me back. I think I think the, I think the crying really put them off. <laughs> uh, I've not, not been invited back. No, they 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 upgraded this year though, because if you remember, three years ago they had a four by three display, which threw me off because I always default. I always always assume a widescreen mm-hmm. sixteen to nine, and this year they had a sixteen to nine. Uh, pretty good setup. But yeah, but places I've gone are more ready for you. We just assume you're going to show up with a, a a MacBook. Well, as long as I'm shooting fish in a barrel, I'll just say that when I do show up somewhere, and I because I, I, I don't want to be thinking about the slides. I want to be thinking about the room. I mean, it sounds corny, yeah. but I really I want to look at every face out there and see who's on my side, who's not on my side, who's getting ready to cry, who's getting ready to throw something. Like I want to be watching the tone of the room, and I will change what I'm saying. It's just my nature. It, it, it is my nature to adapt to what I'm saying, to what people. I mean, I'm I'm really in the gosh darn room when that's happening. So I'm very inclined to just throw stuff out. But here's the thing: as with the culture of PowerPoint. If you show up somewhere and you are, it's been framed that you are a speaker or a presenter and you don't have slides, it's like not giving a German cake after a meal. People lose it. You, you, lose, <laughs> you lose all credibility. You Jim, know? Jim Kudal never has slides. I, I believe, and I think we talked about this when we were out there. I don't, you know, he, and he speaks semi frequently. And I yeah. don't, you know, and he's a graphic designer. He, he's a good graphic designer, really good. He's never given a talk with slides. He just he just has like you know a couple of like index cards in his hand and and just talks. And it's it, you know it. I do think for some people it is it throws you off in a couple of minutes. But I've seen, and he's a great speaker. But it you know it it keys you in. Well, I mean it, you know it's it's like anything. I mean you know if you're good at what you do and you have something interesting to say and you've rehearsed it enough that that you know how it ends. Then you should use whatever works for you, you know. It, but but I I don't know. It's like ski poles or something. Like I I I just think that I, I think that again in this culture, and I, I'm again I'm probably being reductive, but in that culture, it is so normal, and it, it's it's so okay to have basically done a second draft outline that you then turn into graphics, and and that's super weak in my opinion. 
You know, I don't think, you know, when I listen to a podcast or when I watch a movie or whatever, like, I don't want to see the scaffolding, you know, there may be a structure to it. And sometimes that's important. If you say the three things that need to change about our company to stay alive, then you better have three things. But I, you know, the the other book that I always recommend to people, I, I learned about this from Matt Howey years ago. And I think if you're struggling at all with, with presentations or you're getting started, you could do a lot worse than this book. This is a book that has started to suck over the last few years as it's a Microsoft Press book called uh, uh, Beyond Bullet Points. And unfortunately, over the years, it's become more about PowerPoint. But the basic premise of it is strong. If you can find an old copy, get it. But the basic premise is that you're telling a story in three acts. You're telling us, and it basically walks you through, it gives you a Microsoft Word document that you fill out, and you write the headline. It has to fit in one line. You write the headline for what each slide is. Like, where are we? Who is the main character? You tell a story. There are three acts that can have scenes inside the act, depending on how long you're speaking. And then you bring it back around to what your solution is and so forth. Anyway, it's an exercise. It's one of those paper prototype things where I think anybody who wants to get better at presenting should make themselves walk through that, Right. And if you walk through that and you can't tell that story in those headlines, then you may not know what your story is yet. And throw then, then throw it away. But but now you know what it is you're trying to say. You know the three big points that you want to make, and you can amplify that however you want, whether that's through graphics or shooting a flare gun, whatever it is, you know your story now, and and you can speak with authority. I think it's a good point, too. You said that you like to... S- you, do you always like to check out the room before you speak, always. if possible? Yeah, yeah always. I, I like and to it, see, yeah. And again, I, I don't, I mean, I'm a writer, and then occasionally I speak. I am not, I, I'm trying to get better at it. And You've gotten way better at it. I, I do, th- you know, I, I almost never try to say things like that. It's always uncomfortable for me to admit if I'm good at something. But you don't I look do like you're peeing. Gotten... You don't look like you're about to pee yourself anymore. That's a huge yeah. improvement. You used to look really scared when you talked. Through through a lot of hard work and thinking about, you know, and and painfully watching, you know, when they they publish the videos of my talks and thinking about what exactly I'm doing wrong. Um but a big part of it for me definitely is seeing the room first and then kind of imagining what it's going to be like when it's filled with the people who are there to speak, you know, to see me. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, that was why I didn't use slides at Ool last year. So Ool uh, the, in Dublin last year had a great, or this year I guess it was, uh, had a great, great room right in the center city, Dublin. Um, big round room. Uh, and you could see how it would be used for multi-purposes, but they had a stage... And they had a big um, screen for the day-to-day, you know, the daily presentations. Um, but my, I was the closing keynote, and I was going to speak right before dinner. And there was like a 90-minute break for a cocktail hour or something between the day's sessions and then when I would come on for the keynote. And I was going to speak for the keynote or this closing keynote. And then when I'm done, waiters are coming out with food, you know, it's the moment you know I drop the mic, <laughs> and the the organizers um, of the conference, Paul and uh, Dermot, good guys, really good guys. I mean, everybody who speaks there, you know, has nothing but great words to say about them. They told me I could have whatever I wanted. You know, if I want the screen, I could have the screen. Um, but I could kind of see that they 
you know, they didn't want it. I was like, well, you guys don't want the screen, right? Though you want it because they wanted to in that when when the the conference goers were out having cocktails, you know, in between the day sessions and the evening keynote. There were people in the building who were going to reconfigure the room from right, and they might be milling around while you're talking and stuff like that. Well, that they were going to, you know, that they made it, you know, they redid the room so it would look like a nice dinner. It was a nice dinner, you know, mm-hmm. and it wasn't, you know, just day to day. And that they thought, you know, I said, you think the room will look better for dinner if there's no big honking screen up there? And they said, yeah, more or less. And I said, okay, no screen, you know, but it totally changed my idea of what the room was going to be like. Because it, you know, yeah. Anybody who thinks that, that it doesn't make a difference to walk through the room hasn't done this enough. Because it's sometimes really quite surprising. Because you think about one thinks about it from one's own, you know, whatever you've done before. So if all, all you've ever done is speak at universities, you're used to the idea of walking into an auditorium where there's a bunch of fixed seats where everybody's facing you. But I, I, I. I <laughs> How I mean, or even for example, if I know I'm speaking in a hotel ballroom, I have a pretty good idea what that's going to look like. It's probably going to be a bunch of round tables where people with right. pads sit in, in, in around a circular tables. But it can sometimes be really. If you if I find out, for example, I think I'm going to go into something like, let's say, a ballroom, but it turns out that I'm in like a breakout room where it's going to be like one big table, and whoa, it's actually 15 people rather than 80, like like in my head or whatever. Walking through that can really should really change the way you think about what you're doing. I mean, in the same way that if you were, it's just silly, but I mean, if you were serving a meal, finding out the number of people who are coming should have a really big impact on what you decide to do. Um, because in how much you can count on the room being with you, things like, will the lights be on or off? Will it be after lunch? I always ask people to try and book me sometime in the morning. It really sucks to come on right after lunch because people are usually pretty sleepy. Yeah. It sucks to be, if you're not careful about it, it sucks to be the last one. Do you remember at Webstock, my uh, my crying talk was actually quite short by my standards. With the very important exception of sexual intercourse, I've never done anything for less than ninety minutes. Like I, everything I do will be ninety minutes. Phone call ninety minutes. Meeting ninety minutes at least. But in that instance, I knew that it was the last talk. I knew that people wanted to go drink and be right. and be done. And so, and luckily, what I had to say could be said in that amount of time. But all those environmental factors, boy, believe me when I say that all of those things matter. Like, for example, we both kind of bombed at Macworld. You know what? We both bombed at Macworld that year we spoke together. Kind of. Don't you think? I mean, by, by, by our own standards, we, neither of us did that great at that talk. Which one was that? I spoke at Macworld a few times. Uh, I think you were doing Kubrick. I was doing oh, Patterns yeah, for Creativity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but that. now in my head, I was going to go into a room full of Mac enthusiasts who love me. Um, And what I walked into was the single biggest auditorium I have ever been in in my entire life. And there were, I can't even tell you how many people were there except to say the seats were about three to 5% full in a giant auditorium. People were spread all over the place on their computers. And it's one of the worst receptions I've ever gotten from an audience. I wasn't yeah, prepared. Wasn't I was completely the, unprepared for for how that was going to go. And it had no. It was no no. There was nothing wrong with the audience. It was just the wrong audience for the room. Like the same exact thing. If the room had actually only held, I don't know, one hundred and twenty five people. One hundred percent. Would well, it, and you know it, it one hundred and twenty five people in a room that holds one hundred and twenty five people is a great audience. And I've spoken at a lot of conferences that are you know roughly that size. Mm-hmm. 125 people in a room that holds a thousand people. It really, seriously, John. I think it would have might have held a thousand people. It was I, it was I like do. a small was, stadium. 
It was massive. Yeah. Well, and 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 you know, and this is something I learned from Jesse Thorne, and I I've really I've blanched at this for a long time. But Jesse, when Jesse would book shows for uh, Monsters of Podcasting, which was when we'd have occasional shows with You Look Nice Today and Jordan Jesse Go, he did this thing that drove me bananas, which was he would not book us anywhere that we could not very easily sell out to capacity and beyond, which I thought was very conservative. It seems silly to me to go into some fire trap in the mission with like 40 seats in it. But he said something that has really stuck with me. He said something along these lines. At a comedy show in particular, the, having one seat open, the difference between having one seat open and having every seat full and people standing up, it's all the difference in the world. And he's kind of right. I mean, yeah. you know, if you're in that room with 125 people and it's 120, there's much more sense of, not community, but, you know, there's people next energy. to you. It's a, a, a collective energy. It's right. all contained. No. You're keeping the hat on. And the other thing, in the case of that Macworld one, where where it was, you know, maybe a hundred hundred or so people in a room with maybe close to a thousand seats, it's also natural for people to spread out. You know, if you're coming in to see us speak, and you see this sparse seating, you're you're just going to, you know, somehow. I think your most people's natural inclination is to find a place roughly equidistant from other people. No, it's like, so yeah, that's a phenomenon. That's a known phenomenon in elevators, turns out. It's true. Right. Like you will always have equidistance from people when it's possible. And then you will move accordingly. Like when you're on a bus, same thing. I, th I think the right thing to have done in that situation would have been to just acknowledge it. Just start by saying, uh, instead of pretending, which is what I did, and just pretend that there wasn't this <laughs> elephant in a room of all these empty seats, <laughs> best thing to do would have been to say, Look, I don't know what's going on here, but everybody, everybody, stand up, come to the front, right. and fill in the seats, and just stand in front of where I am. And f if there's only a hundred of you, fill in the hundred seats closest to this microphone. I remember I, I post. I, uh, to your point, I, I remember posting a photo of you because there was it was set up for like like a Jonestown type thing. I mean, it was this improbably large room, which is great. I mean, that's, I don't think, I think it's just the room that they used for this stuff. Yeah. It wasn't like they thought Merlin and John were going to pack the no, room. No. It was just, that's the room they had. It, but they also had like, do you remember the setup? Like dealing with the guys backstage and, and there was a huge stage, there's a podium, and then there was a ginormous screen. Do you remember how yeah. big? And I remember I took a photo of you looking a little bit like Big Brother on this thing, and I remember putting it on <laughs> Flickr or something. But that was part of it was it made us everything feel small. Now go back to Jesse Thorne's uh, fire trap yeah. in the mission, and you know if you'd had that same, if you'd been in that room with that number of people, you would have felt looser probably. Yeah, you would go, totally. oh my god, it's a sellout. But like everybody here is here because they want to be here, and they're not checking their email. You know, in, in the in the ninety fifth row. Yeah. Let me take a break, tell you about our first sponsor. Brand new sponsor, first time on the show. You've heard of them, I'm sure. Warby Parker. Cool glasses. Here's the idea. Anybody out there who buys glasses, eyeglasses, they're so expensive. They're crazy expensive. Last time I bought glasses, I, I, they were like $500. Warby Parker, their glasses start at 95 bucks, and they look great. They're very cool. They have a slew of styles. They have a quote-unquote titanium collection, if you're not into the, the plastic, chunkier look. Um, you know, real sleek metal ones, 100, 145 bucks. Totally uh, top quality, very well designed. Uh, I remember seeing, 
when uh, the Google Glass came out last year, and everybody was like, "My God, these things are so goofy, ugly looking." When when the pushback came at, "Hey, that's just the first generation. They're going to make the new ones look better." They're working with Warby Parker on future generations of them. Like Warby Parker's designs are good enough that that's they're known as like super stylish glasses, but they're very very affordable. They are not, uh, to use your word, costly. Uh, how do you buy them? This is the other part that's fantastic. They, they, could, they could not possibly make it any easier. You just go online. You pick out ones that you think look good. You order up to five pairs, and they'll just send them to you. You don't buy them. They just You just say, here, here's five that I think are maybes. They'll send them to you. They show up in your house. You can try them on. You look in the mirror. You can ask your, uh, your significant other, uh, you know, which of these, which of these uh, uh, look good. Find the one you like, you give them your prescription, send them a fax, a photo of it. You can just tell them your eye doctor's name, and they will uh, call your eye doctor and get your prescription. And within 10 days, 10 business days, usually less, your eyeglasses uh, with the prescription show up right in your house. Uh, They don't upsell you on anti-reflective coating. Everybody gets the anti-reflective coating. Uh, There's no catch. If you want sunglasses, they have polarized sunglasses for ninety-five bucks, uh, one hundred and forty-five in the titanium collection, uh, and you can get prescription uh, polarized sunglasses for one hundred and fifty bucks. Personally, I'm not a fan of polarized sunglasses. You wear polarized sunglasses? No, I'm not a big uh, sunglasses guy. I, I think yeah, I like yeah. sunglasses, but I don't like polarized ones. Uh, it makes uh, screens look weird. But if you're into them, I know a lot of people are. Fin- you know, I. I uh, I know a lot of people are into polarized sunglasses because every time I get one of the new uh, eye devices, you know, iPhones or whatever, people always I get emails from people. How does it look with polarized sunglasses? So if you're into them, <laughs> what a strange filter for the world! It, it is. Well, you know what it is. I think that it's one of those things where people who are into polarized sunglasses love them, but then they notice all of the things that don't work well with them. That oh, it's like know, having a pacemaker and having to avoid microwaves. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. Very stylish. It, it, it's, it's just wins all around. Lots of styles to choose from. Cool-looking glasses. Incredibly low prices. And incredibly convenient. None of this nonsense where you're in the car and you spend four, four hours driving around the mall looking at uh, eyeglasses. Well, you're not you arguing. You're not sitting there wrestling with the people in the eyeglasses place. I, just, I, 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 feel, I feel so – I feel like prey when I go into one of those places. It's convenient, stylish, and super affordable. Uh, uh, you're going to save tons of tons of dough compared to the eyeglass places, and they don't upsell it on the the goofy stuff like the anti-reflective coating. Like, who doesn't want anti-reflective coating? You know, why, why is that something you have to pay extra for? You don't have to pay extra for it at Warby Parker. Uh, what do you do to find out more? Go to WarbyParker.com. W-A-R-B-Y, P-A-R-K-E-R.com. Uh, pick your five glasses, have them sent to you. That's free. You get those glasses free. You try them on. You pick which one you like. You send those back in a prepaid package. And the one you decide on, you order them online from the comfort of your home, and they'll come to you in no time at all. Now, ordinarily, their shipping is fast. You get them with about 10, 10 business days. But I've got a special deal for you just for listeners of the show. Uh, use this code, the talk show. All one word, the talk show. When you uh, order your glasses, not when you get your five uh, take-home ones, but when you get the one you want to you want to buy, use that code and you'll get your glasses within three 
days. Three days. So go to warbyparker.com and remember the coupon code, the talk show. So my thanks to Warby Parker for sponsoring the show. Good sponsor. Really cool outfit. Our pal Sandy did a, uh, a video for him a while back. God, it's like a million years ago now. Yeah. He's a big shot now. He's such a big shot. And he's wow. got his, his, his radar for like cool, interesting things is, you know, it's like the clients he attracts are just insane. So like, I didn't even know this. Just, just yesterday, just yesterday, this thing came out. I think it came out yesterday. At least I only noticed it yesterday is this thing coin. Have mm-hmm. you seen this? Yeah, I saw the video. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I haven't watched the I had video no idea. yet, but, I, but everybody was talking about it yesterday. I had no idea that he had anything to do with it. It's just people are like, you know, on Twitter, like, you got to go check out this coin. So I go and look. And then there it is. It's it's Adam doing the damn video. And the thing is the coolest looking thing I've ever seen. It's You get like a little electronic credit card, and you just put all of your other credit cards into it. And then you have like a magic credit card that that is like every credit card. Yeah, I mean, to say the obvious, I mean, it's reached a point where Adam has become a filter. He's become both a filter and a platform where it sounds so strange to say, but, you know, if he accepts your gig, that's almost like a kind of benediction. because, yeah. And then he has such a following because of his reputation for these things that you're going to get a lot of attention for your product because Adam did it. You know, I mean, I don't think there's that many traditional advertising firms that can say that. It's crazy. I, I, it's almost gotten to the point where I'm suspicious of a new product that doesn't come with one of Adam's videos. It's probably smart. I mean, you have so many options, John. Hmm. Hmm. I read your iPad review. Published just before we went on the air. What would you think? I thought it was good, and uh, I read it quickly because we had to record the, your program. But uh, it, I feel like it's—I don't really need a new iPad. Um, my wife and I both have the first-generation iPad Minis, and yeah. and I, we probably shouldn't talk about computers because who cares? But I will just say uh, I I'm I'm one of those people. I'm like I sound like you now. Where like I, when I go back to like. Picking up my iPad 2, it, it, it feels like I'm holding a chalkboard. It, it's so heavy. It's so large. It's fun to read comic, comics on just because it's bigger, but it's not retina. I cannot imagine going back from the form factor, the general form factor of the iPad mini, but the iPad Air sounded so compelling. But you put it in stark terms in your review. You base, it sounds like you basically said these are, it's just, it really is just a matter of size. Yeah. And I, want, I did want to speak to you a little bit about that. And and I wanted to ask you because I know you you're you've always been into comics, but it seems like you've gotten even deeper, like almost yeah, it, Pro- problematically it, yeah, problematically into comics. Mm-hmm. Do you do you, how do you how do you read them? You mostly you're you're like a go to your neighborhood comic shop and buy buy the paper. You know, both, both and or all is is the thing. Um, I I, I would. I, I'm as I've matured. Boy, that's an unfortunate word. As I've spent more time with this, I'm realizing I don't need nearly as many hard copies as I've gotten. I mean, I've got boxes and boxes of comics, and I've only been at this for like a year or two. I don't really need all that. I'm I'm not a collector in that sense. I, it's silly for me to have all of these copies of comics. I, I really love reading them on Comicsology, and just so you know, uh, I mean, not that anybody cares, but in, in the Marvel world, anyway. 
Um, two ninety nine. You buy a comic for two ninety nine at the store, which is a bunch of the titles. Uh, you know, you get the hard copy. If you buy one of the like marquee titles and it's three ninety nine, you get a free digital copy from Comixology. It's that simple. It's two ninety nine. Mm-hmm. You don't get a digital copy. Three ninety nine. You get a digital. Copy. By the same token, if you buy a collection in trade paperback format, you get the trade paperback. With a lot of them, if you buy a hardcover, you get a code to get the entire hardcover edition. Uh, in comicsology, um, so that's I am increasingly. I guess if there's anything that's been holding me back in part, yeah, there's the sentimentality of I like have I like go, I still love going to the comic store. It's just a matter of, of like I don't need as many comics every week as I buy right now. I'll still go to the comic store every week, but no, I am very intrigued, and I have to say, comics are the reason that I would even think about this. I don't. I, I'm so happy with my iPad Mini, um, but it's not Retina. I've never owned a Retina iPad. But I, I mean, you're looking at a grand for yeah. like the. If I buy an iPad Air, I'm gonna want to buy the big one yeah. with the uh, wireless or the um, LTE or whatever. Yeah. So, but I mean, what am I looking at for? Is, is it gen- is it generally like just a hundred dollar difference at each level? Like, if yeah. I want a 64 gig mini with LTE, what is that gonna be like? Five six hundred? Something like that. But whatever it is, it's a hundred dollars less than the exact same specs. In the uh, the air model, you make it sound so much faster. It is incredibly faster. I do. I do. I think that there is a. a it's there's a raw raw. You know, uh, you know. God, uh, you know, we we love Apple so much, and Apple can do no wrong in their magic company. And you know, there's 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 that that level of uh, fandom that people who praise Apple consistently can be accused of. And I, you know, I, I don't want to fall into that, but it something about the, the a seven chip has me thinking that we're, we're missing something profound that they're achieving here where, uh, we, none of us have ever bought and liked iPhones and, and iPads just because of performance. You know, it, it's, you know, and even Macs traditionally, you know, in the old days before they switched to the mm. Intel chips, they were... Certainly not. <laughs> right. It's 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 a factor, and, you know, you certainly want it to be fast, but it's the overall experience that's, that's worthwhile. And, you know, like the iPhone in the last few years has never topped the benchmarks. It's, it's a balance between performance and... Uh, battery life and the size and it, you know does it get hot in your hand and something stuff like that but you look at the benchmarks and you go to sites like a, a non-tech where they test all these things and the a7 devices the new iphone 5s and both of the new ipads are faster than all of the other devices and they're still and it's not like oh now that they're faster now benchmarks are the reason to buy apple products it's still the overall experience that matters, but there's something really profound about the fact that Apple is both still achieving the sort of balance between power and energy consumption that they always have to, you know, to get long battery life. Um, it's also funny because, but the other guys can't match them on just on pure performance. You know, now that that, the, that that two things that are new, yeah, that is new. The other thing that's new is, at least in my mind, Apple were the ones that were always famous for asinine battery estimates, 
when Steve would get up there and say that something was going to last, your, your Mac was going to last for five, six hours or whatever, I mean, there just aren't enough asterisks in the world for what you would have to do to get that performance. Yes, Whereas exactly. you say you, you went and put the Avengers on at full screen brightness and lost 33 and 34%, I believe you said, right. um, power. I mean, that's a new world. It's uh, That must be said. I mean, these are mobile devices, and you don't want to just flip that thing on and find out that it's that's been grinding on some background process that brings you down 30 points, and now your backpack is hot, and you don't know why. Yeah, I think part of that, and I think you're right to even mention Steve Jobs by name, and I think part of it is, you know, it's that that uh, real, reality distortion feel that he had around him. And part of it, you know, he had himself in it, and I think that he always was dissatisfied by laptop battery life. You know, that this, it's... It, used to be I've always found that you could get a in the old days I don't know a good two hours out of a two to three hours when I had my Wall Street or no Lombard yeah. I never remember which I had but let's when just they were say called, let's say and let's say when they were called power books right? I'll tell you this it had two it had two big holes in it that could be used for optical drives or batteries and right. I had two batteries. I would I would take out the optical yeah. drive and put in both batteries when I traveled because you needed them. If you wanted to do anything, I remember buying Rushmore. And like if I wanted to watch Rushmore on the plane, I had to take out one of the batteries, put in the optical drive, and then be ready to pause partway through to change the battery. Yeah. I remember – yeah, and I remember a lot of my f- time when I fly has always been coast to coast, you know, going out to California for, you know, conferences and stuff. Uh and I remember it used to be that you, you know, there was nowhere, nowhere, no way that you could go the whole flight on, on a power book. You know, you'd have plenty of time if you'd had some work to do and you wanted to, you know, you didn't have Wi-Fi on the thing. But if I was like writing a slide deck or, mm-hmm. or like you said, just using it to watch a movie, you were going to get one movie out of that thing. I mean, that was it. And maybe sometimes lucky, yeah. I also remember purposefully picking out movies that were under two hours because if you picked one that was over two hours you risked you know running out of time not because the flight wasn't long enough but because the battery didn't last and yet like you said they were sold you know they would say four hours of battery life you know and it was you know turn the brightness turn the screen off <laughs> turn the turn off, off wi-fi turn off turn bluetooth do not play any video. It's funny how what don't, podcast? No, exactly. No, you don't move not. the don't move the mouse. Don't do anything that makes that hard drive spin up. Right. Um, and yet, on the other side, I feel like it's come all the way around where they the whole concept of the iPad. And I, I've I, I I mean I can't prove it, but I mean I've spoken to enough people at Apple that yeah, this was sort of a baseline. Is there, there's always been a floor of 10 hours of real-world use, battery life. And that starts with the first iPad from 2010. That that was a, a minimum, you know, that real 10 hours of battery life had to have. And everyone since has also had that. Um, the mini, the Retina ones, I mean, that's why the Retina ones got thicker and heavier, you know, from the iPad too. But it was that no matter what, we're not going to, we're not going to go below 10 hours of real battery life. I think you get I think you can easily get more than 10 hours of battery life. I mean, I don't even, it's it's almost hard to measure it as a reviewer like trying to give I don't even know how to make the thing run down. Well, those those benchmarks are good at seeing how well it did at the benchmark, but you know, I think anybody can tell you that that's 
your experience, Syracuse has talked about this, I think on the episode with you, you guys talked about this with, you know, his Mavericks review and how hard it is to like replicate things exactly over and over. And, yeah. you know, especially if you're doing something with battery stuff, where you have to run it all the way down and back up and how difficult all of that can be. Um, I mean, I'll just tell you what comes straight to mind for me is, you know, in, in our uh, inside baseball discussions over the years, we've talked a lot about things like you turned me on to the Mophie. Uh, juice pack. And uh, when I had my 3G, I want to say, 3GS, probably. God, right. terrible at naming things. I want to say the 3GS, which is a swell phone. I mean, I really needed that thing. And I used it until it died. I, I used it until the USB port stopped working. And uh, and the thing is, from with the 4S, I ended up buying that new one with a different form factor, which is not nearly as good. You know, the one where it's got the little cap stays on and it's yeah, it's yeah. real crummy compared to the old one. Um, I would like to circle back to my crashy 5S. But having said that, the 5S, I have no problem less than all day long with the 5S now. It it's, crashes? It's, oh, my God. I, I get a lot of really unexplainable behavior on my 5S. Hmm. Yeah, you don't. No. Hmm. All right. I don't think so. But, but, but yes. Oh, well, you mean like... Uh, I get I get things where I will do something. See, I don't even want to say that I do something because it's hard to know what causes something to happen. But it could be I feel like I've gotten a lot doing stuff with Instacast, which I think is actually in pretty sore need of an update at this point. But I'll, I'll be doing something that feels pretty trivial. Uh, it'll be, but it will be during some change, um, and it'll just bloop. It'll just go out, and up comes the uh, white apple. I just get that. That's just the thing I get a couple times a week. See, I, I, a couple times a week I would complain about. It. I've seen it a handful of times. Didn't, and it's ha- didn't weird. have it, that very much at all with the 4S ever. And it's a weird thing where it doesn't seem to be a full reboot either. Well, I've I'm heard about sure. the, is that the half crashes people are talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I've gotten ones where it seems to just... It, boy, are you ready for this? Get ready for me to reveal how dumb I am. It, it doesn't feel like it's something very low in the stack that crashed. It feels like maybe the interface crashed. Yeah. But it didn't go that, all I, the way down. I think that that's probably the springboard. Okay. That's the the home screen. It's app, like when I you're – you, click, click. Or something like that. I don't yeah. even know. I You know, it used to be that springboard, which is the name that, that nobody really needs to know it. You have to be like a nerd. But it was it's the app that runs the home screen. But all the apps, whenever you'd launch an app, were always a child process of Springboard. And in Mac OS X terms, I think it's closest to <laughs> It's like a finder the, crash. <laughs> no, it's like the Windows server. Okay. Oh, gosh, yeah. Like if you ever go into activity – I mean, Huge. don't do this if you have anything open. If you go into activity monitor and find Windows server and then force quit it, mm-hmm. well, everything goes away. Uh, but that, it, I could be wrong about this, and I'll bet uh, our pal Guy English is probably going to email me as soon as he hears the show and explain to me how I'm. I'm, I, I'm I, this is purely I'm giving this to you purely anecdotally. But right. you know what? Let's but there is some there is some process that could crash, and it wouldn't bring to it's like you said, it's not the whole stack. It's well, not it could the just whole be system. it could be something in iOS seven. It could who knows where it is. Right. I have every confidence that but it you will see it be a fixed. couple times a week. See, I don't see it a couple times a week. Well, I, I don't keep track of it, but there are a lot of times where I'll do something that seems pretty trivial. Um, like I'm not, I'm not talking about like trying to do something you know computational. As far as I know, it usually is making some change in state. Like I'm, I'm I bring it up and I'm going to do something again with like you know maybe fast forwarding or something like that. Or I anyway, that's a thistle. But uh, but but I I agree with you about the battery thing, and it's. 
I don't know. It's funny how fast things change. It is really funny how fast we've gone from like Flash has to be on everything to now. Like I, I, I mean, I just I, I can't imagine what I. I just have to say that, like, for a normal person walking around, I think it makes a huge difference to not have to recharge at four in the afternoon. Yeah, I think so too. The only time I ever even come close with my iPhone 5S is if I'm out of the house, like somewhere, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm using it a lot. I'm on the phone a lot and on LTE. And then it can, you can still, I can still run it down in a day if I'm. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, it's, um, I, I, I take a lot of precautions when I, when I change my environment, I take a lot of precautions. I, you know, up the security. If I, and it sounds silly, but I mean, I think it's worth it. I think people treat this stuff way too lightly. It's when I learned, like, I haven't talked about it a lot, but I can talk about it now. I learned a bit long time ago that you didn't have a passcode on your phone. And, uh, I, a long time ago. I didn't? I believe, you know, you know what? It might have been razzing you about your me.com password. That, I think you and Sandy, I used to razz you guys about those. But I can't believe I found out now that the Touch ID exists, I'm finding out how many people have never, ever had a passcode on their phone. Have you always had a passcode? I, uh, I think I did. I think so. It must have been your me.com maybe. password. I watched you do something on uh, on and once and I like, my, my head was spinning at how easily you put in your password. Because I have to sit down and like, maybe I'm just old. I have to sit down and concentrate with mine. <laughs> it's like, but but anyway, now that can be said, a lot of people are admitting that they've never had that. And I just, I, I don't understand people who do that. I, I may have gone the first year or so without a passcode. This is a long time I didn't, ago. I didn't know what to do. You know, I never had a smartphone before. Shh, uh, really? No. I you didn't have a Palm just, or a... Uh, I had a, a, not a phone though. I had a uh, Palm Pilot, Palm Pilot yeah. you know, back in like the 1840s. Um, <laughs> I had so many Palm Pilots. I had like four or five. I loved them. That that VX, I, the Palm VX, man, that thing was amazing. I've I've used the passcode as long as I can remember on my iPhone, though, and I never and, and not because I got burned, but because I I did I you know it dawned it's on common me eventually. Sense. Like I yeah. mean, it's you know, okay. you know, Steve Jobs apparently didn't use one though. <sighs> That's the story, the backstory I read, uh, I think this was on Quora, uh, but, and it's, you know, so who knows, take it with a grain of salt, somebody could have just been some guy making shit up, but it was somebody who said that they used to work at Apple, and that, you know, that, uh, the t- this is like, the, how did Touch ID come to be, and that the gist of it is it definitely goes back to Steve Jobs, where mm-hmm. he wanted a really cool unlocking for the phone. Yeah, you had to have it locked so that you it can wouldn't... see it. You can see it in the keynote. He's so right. every phone, every phone ever, smart or otherwise, has had to some way have some way to keep from accidentally turning on in your pocket. In your pocket, exactly. And this is the or first time we'd seen anything like this that wasn't you know a physical switch or something like that. He was, right. and you could tell he was so proud of that that I can imagine him then not wanting a second thing that he had to do. He was, he was, you know, it's one of those things where, as hindsight goes, you know, and and you know, the time passes since he's since he's dead and you know we look at him with a little bit more detachment you know and and it's not quite as raw just thinking about oh man i can't believe the guys you know that 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 you know but as we fade into the acceptance stage of you know the fact that the guy's dead certain things stand out to me rewatching his keynotes and one of them and i've always thought this but as time goes on it's even more obvious it's so easy to see what he really cared about 
You, like, you, you, everybody's talked about this, and I, I see it too. I see it too. I've gone back. I watched the iPad one. I watched the iPhone one, and you can just see him spend more time than is really necessary, like making the thing spring up and down. Or isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Yeah. Look at that. Look at that. And the unlock. You know, and he, the unlock he's genuinely excited that this thing right. does this. The unlocking on the iPhone is absolutely one of those things. Like the slide to unlock mm-hmm. is something that he he spent way more time on. He spent like as much time on that as he did on like email. It's on using it as a phone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and y- y- adding a passcode ruined that. You know, I mean, is it, you know, I, you know, typing the four digit number, uh, you know, that didn't even get demoed. I mean, it was there from the original thing, but he didn't demo it. And apparently he didn't use it on his own phone because he didn't want, you know, he actually cared about that experience enough. But there's a guy whose actual iPhone, you know, talk about a disaster if somebody had, you know, if he'd lost it or somebody stole it or something like that. I mean, you know. But also, the, I mean, this is going to sound so obvious, but let's look at the bare facts. When he came out with an iPhone, uh, this is the first one of these things that a lot of people would have. Um, there, <laughs> This is going to sound nuts, but in 2007, there were not that many people that were doing email on their phone. There were, believe it or not, and this is going to sound crazy, audience, there were not that many people who were looking at the World Wide Web on their phone. Right. Um, I, I'm stating the obvious. There were no applications for the iPhone at the time. There was not that much stuff to steal off your iPhone. There was not that much stuff where if you were like already logged into something, you could get all this data. It's, it's, a, it's today, it's in the last two years, when you look at the number of people, I mean, even people who use stupid Facebook or whatever. Like you're logged into all that stuff all the time. Those your apps unless you're using something like I use Goodreader, Dropbox. These apps will can can in, in my case do prompt me for a password uh before it gives me access to that stuff. But you're logged into everything all the time, much more so than on your Mac. It's all just laid bare. So I can understand why at the time that wasn't a big deal and that would be seen as just like a kind of feature for nerds probably. Yeah. Let me ask you this. But, he, I, but I'm saying that uh, from what I understand, though, is he, you know, never right did. up till, till the end, never had one on his phone. And that the idea was, he, he, you know, and, and the problem that he commissioned, and who knows, this might be a perfect example of, you know, where he's going to be missed at Apple, is that his dictate was, uh, okay, figure out a way to make this secure, but make it as cool as slide to unlock. And that's, that's Touch <laughs> ID. It is, which is... Is fair to say supply constrained? We think uh, that, that's kind of isn't that kind of doesn't that seem like the bottleneck is the availability? Right. Why is it not on the new iPad? Or why uh, why is it still taking so long to get? You know, five I mean, S's. Marco was uh, says he was at the Apple Store today, and there's people lined up, you know, waiting for five S's. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if that alone is it, but it, it could be. Well, it could be because it must not be the the A seven system on a chip because the iPads have that too, you know, and they're, mm-hmm. if they're making those and the iPhone is still constrained, I don't know. I think, yeah. And, and I've been told that it was hard enough to get it into one device this year and, and not just, I think in terms of the parts, but in the engineering to get it integrated. It feels like a squeaker uh, to me. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to sound contradictory. I don't find it nearly as fast as you do. Um, I don't think, or, or as dependable as I would like. I'm, I'm, I certainly, I use it. It's my primary way a lot of the time, but I, it really feels like about 20% of the time, it, it, even under what seems like pretty normal conditions, it doesn't get it. And I don't know why. Do you think it was good enough to ship? Yeah, mostly. Yeah. 
I mean, if you look at the, if you take the, uh, what's that engineering diagram? But for our sake, we'll say a pie graph. If you take a pie graph of all the people who own an iOS device, you take a pie graph of all the people subset that own an iPhone subset that even know you can set, set a passcode, <laughs> and then the subset inside of that. I think it's definitely enough that, and especially with the introduction of the, the iCloud sync, because now they really are giving you enough rope to hang yourself. Up till now, they have not really made it that simple for you. Like, autofill was not on by default, was it, in the past? No. It isn't like, I, they, I, it isn't like they've, you know, I think they've been somewhat circumspect about, you know, giving you that amount of rope to hang yourself. But now they're really saying, hey, we want you to use this iCloud keychain. And so I think now you, do you, ha you have to put a code on it now, right, if you use that? No, and I actually got that wrong. I I was hmm. I they make it seem like you do, but there is a way that if you actually read every word on the screen that you can turn on iCloud keychain syncing and not have a passcode. You have to really pay attention to the small print as you configure it. And it and if you just go if you you know through that first run mm -hmm. uh, setup, and then l subsequently if you go into settings, I think if you turn off the passcode but l still have iCloud keychain syncing on, it gives you like a a pretty dire warning. Like, are you sure this means anybody who picks up your phone is going to have access to your keychain? But they'll let you do it. <laughs> wow, do you, do you have your phone nearby? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, can you can you look at it for a second? I've been or looking maybe, at it this whole time. Oh, good for you. Um, maybe you can answer this. So settings. Okay. General. Uh, touch ID and passcode. And then enter your code. Okay. Do you, and under require passcode, do you have any one, choice except immediately on yours? One, two, three, four. Okay. What? And when, right. you, when you click require on... Require passload immediately. Do you have any no. other choices? <laughs> no. Okay, this is part of the frustration is I'm forever having to touch ID now because it's constantly making me log back in. It seems, I've, you know what, you know me, I'm old, I don't think. It, it seems like I stay logged in longer if I've done the numerical, but pretty much it feels like every time I turn it off, if I've used touch ID, touch ID well, I guess this, this would indicate that that's the case. Is Wait, there... I feel like you've just done a magic trick on me though. I feel like that didn't used to be the case. <laughs> like I cursed you. <laughs> no, I feel like I had it... I used to have an option there. Right? I, I I, it feels like you, it's well. I, I'm I'm not as you know. I, I'm not a technologist, but it strikes me that if there's a bit there, if there's a preference, there should be something besides the single one that's checked. Can you turn off immediately? Simple passcode, touch ID. I'm clicking. Now I'm looking on a, on my. See, and that's yeah. Anyway, okay. Maybe it's something that's a constraint of what auto lock is on. I've got my I had my auto lock on two minutes, but I recently changed it to five minutes. Um, passcode lock on my iPad. I can change it to, but that doesn't have Touch ID, right? So if if you have Touch ID, you have to lock immediately. They didn't. I, it wasn't like I think they've changed that in in the uh, systems in the one of these systems. I'm sure one of your listeners will tell you, but. Um, yeah, somebody explained this to me. It's ironic, though, because that actually does make it feel a little crazier now. Because it used to be... See, I've always counseled people in the past, hey, look, don't be a dumbass. Like, first of all, like, you used to drive me crazy. I would go and visit my sister-in-law, and she has an iPad, and she uses it in the kitchen for recipes. And I don't, I don't, I didn't even know you could do this. I think she has it set to not auto... Um, what's the phrase? 
it doesn't turn off. Like right. we're having Auto. dinner and I come back 20 minutes later and it's still on and hundred percent brightness. And <laughs> I, I don't know, it's, I get all Syracuse where I'm like, can, can, can I you do some things to this to make this better for you? <laughs> First of all, if you turn this brightness down, like 20% is still going to be, it's like, you ever watch Sandy use his phone and his entire face is illuminated? Like he's yeah. got the brightness all the way up. I want to like, I want to help her with that. Um, and so I, what I would always say to people is, well, how about this? Like, why don't you have your, I mean, because really there's several things, there's several factors in play here. Why don't you at least set your, have a passcode, but then set it to the highest setting. So at the right. very least, you know what I mean? The four hour setting. If you, is that what it is? I think so. You're kidding. But I, I would, well, I would not do it that long. But I mean, that way, if you have left it in a restaurant or something, at least you've got a I, chance. I do that with my iPad. And then when I leave, if I, I I try to think about it, like if I'm going to travel, if I'm getting on an airplane, then I change the the iPad to uh, you know like five minutes. Or I change everything like to immediately. If I if I know that I'm going somewhere, see this just shows you how often I don't leave right. my block, but uh, I, I change it everything to immediately. Because I mean, to me, it's worth it. It's it's weird. I mean, do you hear my idea from a few shows ago? I forget who it was on with. I still want this. I want it so that when I'm at home on the network. Mm-hmm. The first time I verify the passcode, then it'll stay unlocked until I leave the house with the device. I I think I did hear that. I totally agree, but I'm reminded of WordPress, and um, I've I think I still have yeah fives. I think is on WordPress still. Um, how it used to just drive me bananas that even when it got really good and they did that beautiful redesign a few years ago, it really cleaned everything up. It still drove me nuts that I couldn't auto-update the plugins. And I actually, <laughs> I asked Matt about this one time at a, at a conference, and I didn't, you know, get a satisfactory answer. But my feeling is uh, litigation, litigiousness, responsibility, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you had something, even like a cron or an case like a launch D running, that would like, you know, is, people do, don't people do this with their... Linux installs there. I mean, can't you, there are certain kinds of things that you can automate. Like today we can automate app updates. I wonder if app app updates would be automated if everything weren't sandboxed, right? In this instance, this sounds a field, but I wonder if they don't want to give you that much rope. You know what I mean? Where like, you know, it seems like something that would be extremely easy to do. If I'm on a known Wi-Fi network, right? One of the ones where I've, you know, I've said to auto log in or whatever. If I'm on any of these Wi-Fi networks at the very least, or if I'm at the proximity near home or near work that you understand with this phone, once I'm logged in, leave me logged in. Yeah. That doesn't seem that difficult. What why do you think they don't do it? I mean, they want you picking know. this thing up and putting it down all day long. I honestly don't know. I, I and I thought maybe when I spoke about it on the show that maybe somebody who'd listened and and who knew what the whole in the argument that I'm missing. That's what I feel. I just feel like there must be something, some use case I'm overlooking that that would, that would make that a bad idea. And I figured somebody would point it out to me, but nobody did. So I don't know. Well, you know, think about how reminders work with leaving and arriving. There's, it seems like, and with background uh, updates, you know. That's, I don't know, energy consumption by making you have the location awareness on? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's no different than if you were like searching for a Wi-Fi network. Except in this case, you're, it would be look, it would looking for. Oh boy, see, I, I, I like to assume. I know he doesn't. I like to assume that John Syracuse hears everything I say because it, it's what keeps yeah. me from saying even stupider stuff. Uh, no, but it seems like it would be like you know, at at the event that we're looking for here is 
Uh, I have not been connected to a known Wi-Fi network for n minutes. Yeah, and at that point, so you know, at that point when you're off there, even if you say like five minutes, so you allow for things like the internet going down. But even still, even forget it. Let's say you have to be connected, but leave me logged in. I think that seems very sensible to me. Uh, I want to take a break. I want to thank our next sponsor, our good friends, longtime sponsors of the show, Mail Route. You could say Mail Route. I say Mail Route. Here's their pitch. Are you in charge of email for your domain, for your company? Uh, have you been dumped by Postini? Are you being strong-armed onto Google Apps or Office 365? Forget about those guys. That's They're garbage. You want uh, MailRoute instead. It's the best solution an IT person can pick for spam and virus filtering for email. It's really easy. You go to MailRoute.net and request a trial. You can try it for free. Check it out before you pay. You change your MX records for your domain to point to them. Your mail goes to them first, then it gets forwarded on to your mail server. Uh, and that's it. You're done. No more spam. Viruses get filtered out uh, of the attachments to everybody on your domain. It's that simple. It's not hardware that you control. It's not software that you install. It's just a service. And their filters, the filters that they use, are updated constantly. So, like, when the spammers pick up new tricks, they're on top of it. Uh, it's, it's a service that's written by email nerds for email nerds. They have an API. Uh, if you want to, you know, connect to their stuff and configure your account, you want to write your own scripts that do stuff like that for adding users, controlling users. Uh, they have a great knowledge base where they explain everything. Uh, if you're a nerd for email, you really have got to check out MailRoute because they're, it's, it's just a great service. Um, so many people, uh, listeners of the show, have been emailing me that, the, the, you know, that they've signed up and they just can't believe how much easier it has gotten to control the spam and the virus filtering for their domain. Uh, so go to MailRoute.net and sign up free. Just check it out for free, uh, and you only have to pay once you see how great it works. My thanks to MailRoute. It's a great service. A lot of people first are changing time. their mail around. It's uh, yeah. it's definitely in the air. I'll still say this. The first time I remember a couple of weeks ago, Moltz was on the show, and we uh, were talking. I don't know. We somehow got talking about making our own liquor in prison, <laughs> and, and I said somehow. <laughs> I, and I said, I, 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 there was a break in the conversation, and I said, and speaking of prison liquor, let me tell you about mail route, and just went from there. And then at the end of the show, I really did. I just thought, I boy, I don't know about that. That I find that funny, but I, you know, they just, you know, they're paying a lot of dough to sponsor the show. I don't know. <laughs> and then I got, I, I, but I didn't. I left it in. I didn't give any. Well, you never, you, know, you never know. You, you really never know. Like, right. what if? <laughs> not saying this is the case, but what if like their CMO like had both like a record and was a recovering alcoholic? Right. I, and and maybe it was, I got, what if they were also a little bit of a paranoiac? Like that yeah. might really not come across well. But I got, I did, I got an email from them and that they loved it and that they wanted me to think of other funny things like that to say to introduce them. Oh like, man. Shoo. Shoo. That's a keeper, John. <sighs> you keep a sponsor who can take a prison liquor joke. Pig like that, you don't eat all at once. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, what else do you want to talk about? 
Oh gosh, I don't know. We can talk more about iPads. I don't know if we have time to do the, yeah. ske- the scheduling. The scheduling couple. That's a long one. You know what? I this is the thing. I linked to it today on Daring Fireball. This is on uh, Friday, the the fifteenth, as we record. I don't know when the show's going to air, but it's a, a thirty by thirty. That's a, a little sub brand of ESPN. Short, a twelve minute short film about a husband and wife duo, the Stevensons, who for twenty they don't do it anymore. They've mm-hmm. apparently lost the gig, but for 25 years, they're the ones who made the entire Major League Baseball schedule, which is, it's there's 30 teams, each team plays 162 games, but it, I, so I think it's like 2,400 total games a year. And it's one of those things where in the back of my mind, I've always known it must be a complicated problem, um, because there's things like... Uh, uh, maybe and and especially in the era when that, when they were setting the schedule, there were a lot of teams that shared a stadium with a football team, and mm-hmm. so once football season starts in September, uh, you know the Phillies can't play on Sunday, September seventh, because the Eagles are playing. And I don't know, can they play on Monday even? Because maybe it takes more than a day to turn the field back to a baseball field. And the, you know the Pope is coming to Los Angeles, and it's going to be having <laughs> the mass. Pope, the Pope won. <laughs> yeah, that was the best line in the video. That who wins? The Dodgers. Dodgers and the Pope both want Dodger Stadium on the same day, and the Pope. The Pope won. <laughs> um, what you always know? There's somebody who has to solve this problem, and you never know who. And then it was this. It's this great little short film about. Here's the people who did well, it. G- for give baseball. them the uh, give them the punchline. Is that even though they were computer people from back in the day, they do it with paper. Yeah, they scheduled the entire thing with paper, and and, and just because it gives me such my heart skips a beat when I think about any one of these factors. Think about think about the, about travel. Think about as you say, say switching over between it being football and baseball. Think about having two teams that can't play on the same night. Think about holidays. Um, and the stuff they were throwing out, like think about like should Cal Ripken be at home for the when he plays his record breaking uh, Iron Man game, right. you know, right? Uh, um, holidays, that just the travel part alone is bananas enough. But to do all of that and watch watch how they really just did this with uh, some paper and pen and some columns and rows was just was staggering. And the result, and they had, you know, they kept all that, which is, you know, it's a great reason. It makes me feel good about all the pack rat stuff I've got stuffed here <laughs> in my office. Uh, it, if you didn't know what it was, I don't. It would take. I think it might take you a very long time to. If somebody just plopped their paper in front of you, and they'd <laughs> right. be like, "What? What is this?" I, you would be like, "I don't know." It, could, it looks know. like typical, like a, like a compulsive psycho, like maybe this is BMs, maybe it's the star, number of stars that I could count or something. It looks really crazy. <laughs> it's glasses of water you've drunk in a day. <laughs> but the, also, the, the, I mean, obvi- the, the thing that makes it wonderful is this, this couple is so charming. They're, 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 yeah. they, they obviously really love each other. They've been together forever. Great photo of their kid wearing a, a Star Trek shirt. Um, but the, but did you, I, one thing, when they were talking, I was reminded of those scenes in um, When Harry Met Sally when they cut away and show an old couple talking about their relationship and they finish each other's sentences and stuff. But they're two very different people, which I, I part, first thing that grabbed me was that like, she's kind of the brains and he's the heart. Like she's the yeah. one who has this computational ability. She's the puzzle solver and he's the architect and the guy and the baseball fan who goes like, well, no, 
you, you yeah, I, I wouldn't, let's not do it that way. Let's do it this way because of, of these reasons, which are sometimes a little inscrutable to her. But part of what made them great was it wasn't as simple. I mean, any bonehead could write a really stupid computer program for doing this, but it's all of those exceptions that make it difficult. And the exceptions are numerous. You know, I started thinking about how you would write a program like this, and it's really almost nothing but exceptions. The basic yeah. scheduling part's a no-brainer. Anybody could do that. But it is it is the stuff like the amount of travel and the stadium sharing. like, And then also they would go through all the letters they get uh, at the beginning of the season or beginning the scheduling from places that are like, well, we want to be out of town during this event. Right? Right. When the whenever like you know when this religious convention comes to town, we want to be gone and stuff like right. that. Right, we, we don't want to be here. <laughs> it's fascinating, right? And they had you know, and and somebody would say uh, they. I think the one example was that one team said, uh, "Hey, we haven't had a homestand on July fourth in five years. You know, we want to sell extra tickets to to have a fireworks show. You know, and 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 the woman." New instance. She's like, wrong. Two years ago, you had a July 5th homestand or July 4th homestand. Uh, but they would just say stuff like that. Like the clubs would be, you know, they'll, they'll say anything. Yeah, that was, what, I mean, a lot of what grabbed me, and I guess this is the whole purpose, was their relationship. But also just thinking about, on the face of it, that should be in my wheelhouse because it's about scheduling and paper. But also it's about dealing with people and relationships. And the fact that she, he said something interesting, the husband um, said something along the lines of, you know, you couldn't, you sh- nobody could go into a meeting with, with people and think and talk at the same time. So one of us thinks and the other one talks. Right. And in that, that instance, yeah, too. and she, because she is the one with the head for figures, she's the one who could immediately pull up the, the data and hold it in her hand to show that you had a July 4th two years ago, you know? <laughs> But um, but he was – I got the sense that he was the one who had more of the passion for the game. And so he was able to introduce more thinking that would probably be agreeable to people because he understood how baseball people think. Yeah, I think so, more or less. Yeah. But a fascinating story. And to me, it's one of those things where it's like uh, like who else has a job like that? I mean almost nobody – in the world, right? I mean, like the NBA basketball schedule is a little similar. They they play eighty two games a year. Uh, you know, the NFL schedule, football schedule is easy by comparison. It's only on Sundays, and there's only sixteen regular season games a year. Now, I'm not saying now somewhere out there, there's the guy who does the NFL season, and you know, I'm sure it's a That's hard. It's not job. you can't even compare, and then yeah. including things like interleague play. Like, think about, oh, by the way, interleague play. Like, that's incredible to think about. Like, the complexity, at least in my mind, and I, I'm, I'm much closer to him than her uh, in terms of the way I think about the world. But, like, that, the number of, I don't know, I guess I started thinking about, it. you're the programmer here, not me. But, like, when I've done a little bit of programming in the past, I mean, I would just think about how you would approach a problem like that computationally. And in some ways, paper does seem better suited to it because it's all about asking this right question. Because you could spend forever writing the program for this, and if it doesn't take into account what's really important about all of this stuff, then it's just going to become a whole slew of exceptions, it seems like. Yeah, totally. I think that it's, you know, it's... It's just interesting because it's to me. It's you've always I've always thought, boy, that bit those I bet that's a tough job making that baseball schedule. But right. then and then in the back, but but you know, there's going to be one. There's going to be a baseball schedule every year. So 
uh, it's just easy enough to think, well, somehow it gets taken care of. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I didn't get the sense of who they – I guess they work for Major League Baseball. Right. But and they get was... input from these other people. So it's – part of it also is as a project management type, I, I like thinking about like, well, who did they have to say yes and no to? Who did they have to like ultimately please? And what kind of stuff could they – because certainly anybody could come up with the craziest things in the world. Like, oh, you know, we have to be back the second night of this three-night stand. We, you know, we're having, you know, baseball back giveaway night. And so we have to make sure it's not during rainy season. I mean, I'm sure if everybody had their druthers, they'd be asking all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. I wonder what other kind of jobs there are out there that are like that, that are like a, a one-off, nobody else does anything like it sort of gig. I'm, I'm fascinated by jobs like that. The other thing we're not mentioning that's worth mentioning is that, yes, they did this starting, what, 82 or something like this. They started doing yeah. this. Um, and again, with paper. Um, but also, it, was, it really was just the two of them working from their home. Yeah. Are you getting this? Like, you're, we're talking about the scheduling of all of Major League ba- How many games? 2,400 and some every year. And how they say how many million people see a baseball game every, like, you know, some ridiculous oh, number of million it's people. It's ridiculous, right. The, Think about know, the like revenue fo- that's involved in that. Right. Huge amounts of money. It's, uh, it, it's, it, it, there are, it's, I'm always interested to run into people, um, who, do, who do something, I don't want to say like that, but, but to meet people who, um, have established themselves in some kind of an industry where maybe and probably against all fate, like they've ended up being the go-to person for that kind of thing. I'm fascinated by jobs like that. There was another great part of the thing where the, he said the the guy said that the one year, uh, you know, baseball starts at the beginning of uh, April, and I guess there was like a big east East Coast blizzard, and you know, I don't know, Baltimore, Philly, New York, Boston, all got hit by snow can't play baseball in the snow and all these teams were at home to open the season new york and philly and and baltimore and and he said like and everybody was like who's the idiot who put all these teams at home on the, you know when we could you could get snow uh and then that same year it was like all these great pennant races where the teams that were in contention were all just happened to be playing each other at the, in the last games of the season and it was like who's the genius who put this together this is <laughs> brilliant when they would have had no idea about either right. of those factors. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it makes me feel kind of guilty, though, about uh, how hard it is for me to get anything scheduled. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> with the tools that I've got. I think it's like watching a documentary about, you know, we got to put a 1978 fall NBC schedule together. And they, like, have the cards up on the wall and stuff right. like that. Just right. like, the, the Amy, this is like the ultimate tile game. Amy has said, I, uh, I, just, I think Jonas goes to the dentist like every six months, and she has said that it feels as though our entire life revolves around taking Jonas to the dentist. And it's just once every six months, and it's just, it's like 30 minutes, you know, get your tooth cleaned and, you know, check for cavities. But somehow doing that twice a year feels like an incredible, you know, when you know, I don't know. It's school's not out till three o'clock. I don't know. I feel that way about all kinds of stuff now, especially as I get older and time goes a lot faster. Where I feel like I'm, I've always like, I feel like I've always just paid the cable bill, or I've always just paid the the electric, the PG and E bill. And but like, are you kidding me? How, how could I have gotten another one of these so fast? It, but I think that's part of it with the dentist thing. Is it not only feels like I can't believe it's it's it, it is a combination of I can't believe it's already time again because B it really feels like I just did this. 
and those get that closer and closer together. And then, but of course, then you get stuff like, oh my God, like we just, we just, it's just like, it's like PBS or magazines where like, God forbid you, you go and give some money to PBS because you're going to be re-upping constantly for the rest of your life. You know, like we just joined, uh, you know, the Exploratorium, which is a cool museum here in town. And like, we're already getting like notices for like, don't want it to expire. <laughs> Do you get those? <laughs> Yeah. My, my wife's on the liberal sucker list. She's getting busted pallets and you know building bridges in Vietnam. Like she she gets all right. it all all the time. Uh, what do we have? We have the Please Touch Museum here in Philadelphia. <laughs> I, I think we've I think we've contributed. It's so unfortunate. Uh, yeah, that seemed people chuckle. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's a good sentiment. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what a better name would be. I mean, the idea is that it is not your. You know. It, Take your kids and they're going to be able to touch stuff. They're not going to be, you know, look at cool things and don't touch. I think hands-on is is more in parlance, but uh, hands-on museum. Please, please touch <laughs> has a nice uh, scout leader feeling. I think it's. I think. I think that it's probably one of those things. I, I don't know when the Please Touch Museum was founded, uh, but I'm guessing it's it's quite a while ago. At a time when, when oh, maybe so we it goes as, way back. Okay, that makes sense. I think maybe we weren't as cognizant of of. Uh, that connotation of little children and the word touch, <laughs> like, like you, they probably would have come up with a new name if they. You think more of it. Santa's welcoming lap? <laughs> what do you want, little boy? <laughs> My whole idea of uh, Philadelphia is just upside down. Now I always knew you guys were a crooked city. Oh, definitely. Is it really? Is it really that bad? Is it any worse than any other big city? I don't, I don't know. know. I honestly don't know. I guess the other way I to look at it. all big cities are crazy. Is there any big city that's not like that? I yeah. mean, you would have said Here's Canada. A... You would have said Canada, right? But now, yeah. I'm just saying. Mm. Here's a story. just came out on the news. Uh, it was just this week here at local news. And, uh, you know, I'm sure this sort of thing happens all the time. just caught my eye. It was a city, city council meeting uh, right in heart of center city, Philadelphia, right in a Right in the middle, couldn't be better real estate. There's a, uh, uh, there was a fire. It's a long story on this plaza. Right next to city hall. Back in this is like 1990 or 91. It was called One Meridian Plaza. Huge skyscraper, big one. Terrible fire gutted the building. I mean, I got a, a, you know, I'm sure it's a great Wikipedia entry. It was a fire that ruined a massive skyscraper. And then it's like the, you know, well, you think, well, you're, you know, your insurance will take care of that. Uh, well, guess what? Insurance companies don't like to replace entire massive skyscrapers. And so, like, for all of my college years, when I was at Drexel here in Philly, that building, that burnt out husk of a skyscraper remained a burnt out husk of a skyscraper just sitting there on prime real estate because, you know, legal hassles over whether the insurance really covered it. Like you can't redo it. You can't tear it down. It's just All right. there. And it took forever. And it's, you know, and it's one of those things where I feel like maybe, in, you know, in New York, <laughs> stuff just happened. Somebody would have just knocked the damn thing down and rebuilt it, but it just sat there. <laughs> anyway, it's eventually got taken care of. Part of that plot is now... Uh, a big high-rise condominiums part of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It's the, the I don't know. So I, if you want to live at the Ritz-Carlton. Yeah, we have that in San Francisco, like residences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the other part of it is a parking lot. 
I mean, not like a parking garage. It's just a parking lot. And, hmm. you know, and it's one of those things like in New York, there are no, in Manhattan, there are no parking lots that take up real estate like that. It's, you know. And so there's a proposal to build a, like the, the Philadelphia W, a W hotel in Philadelphia. And it's, you know, if there were to be such a thing as a W in Philadelphia, it's exactly where it should be. You know, you don't have to know Philadelphia. It's at 15th and Chestnut. Uh, and if you don't know Philadelphia, just imagine, you know, where a swanky W hotel should go in a city and that's where it should go. Uh, and it's, you would think, well, that's a no-brainer. Let's, you know, how could it not be better for the city to have a, a nice hotel there than uh, uh, a parking lot? So anyway, long story short, guess who's opposed to the building of this hotel? Is it another other, hotel chain? <laughs> a, a bunch of other hotels. And it ends up... They want to keep the unique uh, history and character of the neighborhood. Right. Uh, and it's because there's some kind of tax abatement thing and, you know, that this is not the right time for the city to give a tax break to a new hotel. Except that every other hotel whose representative spoke out about it got the exact same sort of tax abatement when they built their <laughs> hotels or turned whatever building you, their hotel used to be into a hotel. Right. They all got the same deal. Everybody gets it. And it just seems crazy to me that it was, and it's, it, this is the thing, is that it was like a four-hour city council meeting, you know, and it was contentious and yelling and stuff like that. And I just thought, like, I can't believe that that took four hours for you to listen to other hotel people complain about a new hotel. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't live like that. I could have nothing to do with that sort of, uh, I, I just couldn't. How, how could you stand to do that? Uh, I couldn't. It would be difficult. I would. I would have to. Jump up and scream! I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. That I, I couldn't yeah. be. I couldn't listen to that. We're all part of the same hypocrisy. Yeah, you I'm know. glad that I have a job that does not require uh, going in front of city council. I'm glad I don't really have a job. There's so many things about situations like that. You know, think about the presentations. John, can you imagine the presentations that you have to look at when you have a job? <laughs> can you just even can you can you even imagine people just call you and they say oh by the way we're having a meeting I went ahead and put it on your exchange calendar for you so you're gonna come there's gonna be some presentations what are they gonna be about we'll find out when you get there could you imagine if somebody else could just put stuff on your calendar can you imagine <laughs> if somebody else could just put stuff on your calendar can you can you imagine waking up I mean at like 11 you get up at 11 you look at your calendar and there's stuff on there that you didn't put on there that's it would feel haunted to me it would it would be like finding poop in my silverware drawer. I'd be like, "Who's been in here? <laughs> what what is happening? What what is happening? I don't understand how people do this." Anyway, it's a good movie. Really good movie. Did you have anything you uh, you, uh, you want to tell me about? I do. I speak in a good presentations. I gotta tell. Let you. me tell you. I want to tell you uh, this podcast. Our final sponsor. I want to thank an event apart. An Event Apart is the design conference for people who make websites. It's the one design conference and front-end development uh, conference that you don't want to miss because year after year, An Event Apart is the place where groundbreaking technology is, is brought to the front. Uh, they have events all over the country. Go to their website, check it out, and you'll see they have upcoming workshop in San Francisco, and in 2014, they have full events in Atlanta, Seattle, Boston, San Diego, Washington, D.C., and more. 
Um, great shows all throughout the year. Now, it's founded by web visionaries um, and friends of the show. I know them both, Eric Meyer and Jeffrey Zeldman. Eric Meyer may be the uh, preeminent expert on CSS and, and CSS standards in the world. Jeffrey Zeldman, designer, writer, blogger extraordinaire, um, head of the Happy Cog Studio. Great guys, but it's not just them. It is an all-star lineup every time. Every speaker at an event apart is just great. I've seen a lot of these guys speak. I've been to an event apart, uh, I think, at least three times. Always great, and year after year, it's always new. Uh, they have some great speakers lined up for 2014. Check it out on their website and and see the lineup yourself. And I just can't say enough about what a great show these guys put on. It's always a good venue. They always have they have good food, including breakfast, uh, good swag. Uh, how do you find out more? For cities, for schedules, for tickets, and more. This is where you go. Aneventapart.com slash talk show. Put that code at the end, that slash talk show, and they'll know you're coming there from this show. Great conference. I've been to several uh, uh, of their conferences over the years and have never been anything less than impressed by everything, both the speakers and then the quality of the actual show itself. They even give you really cool swag uh, to walk away with. Great badges, everything. Good stuff. You can... The way you can, you really can. This is a, this is a, this is true. The, you know, there's the you you hour ago you said something about you know like those uh, you know location 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 for real estate. People say you can't judge a book by its cover. That's actually false. I think you you could do a you can come pretty close to judging a lot of books by their cover. Good book usually has a good cover. You know what you can do with conferences? You can judge them by the badge, the name badge. An event apart has amazingly hmm. cool badges. Because I, I think it's a sign that if, if you take the time to design a good badge, it, it, uh, it's a sign that, you're, that every detail is planned out just as well. It sounds like one of those Malcolm Gladwell things, like a blink kind of thing. Turns out. Did you read the new Malcolm Gladwell book? Did not. I know you're a big fan. Huge. Oh, brother. Woo, what a fan. Um, uh, let's save that for the next one. Um, no, I haven't. I haven't. I, I, uh, I've been from a certain remove. I've been reading, I wouldn't say enjoying, but I've been, I've been reading the accounts of other people who are starting to realize <laughs> that he's a little, um, he's a very gifted writer. You know, John, he's a very, very gifted writer. Good storyteller. <laughs> he is a good writer. Sure. He, oh, he is. That's the problem. Oh, God, don't get me started. Good head full of hair, too. Oh, are you kidding me? Look at that guy. Canada. Again, Canada. Is he Canadian? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. You can't get hair like that down here. Are you kidding me? He's a gifted guy. <laughs> they should get him bad. to speak at the event apart. He, he, he does all kinds of consulting and speaking, turns out. I think I remember reading somewhere where he is... Uh, the the he is uh, I mean I don't begrudge anybody you, you go out speaking it's, speaking's hard stuff you can get paid but he gets paid a lot to speak he's he's like uh, like up there with like Bill Clinton in terms of no he's work. like he's he's he, yeah he's a Clinton level speaker yeah it, it's it's a lot to get into but he's he's a very good storyteller yeah. it's it's he can be a, a bit of a frustrating character but uh, but he's he sure is a good writer yeah 
I think that I I don't feel strongly either way about him. I, I like his really? work. I don't go out and I don't go out of my way to buy his books. I, I've read at least one of them. I forget which one. I I do think that there's something to the to the charge that he's he he's perhaps falling into doing Mark Malcolm Gladwell. I'll say that the the earlier you, you know s- that no I do, but the earlier you stop reading his books, the more you will continue to enjoy the ones you've read. So I think I think the credulity gets strained more and more with each new title. Yeah. Cuz you run out of you run out of things to well not run out, but I mean you have to have a certain level of again, we should this should be a separate show, but it's uh, you know this is a long time beef for me, so I shouldn't say anything. But I I, I he's a good writer. Very good storyteller. The 10,000 hours thing got me. That might that's one that I I didn't What about people uh, who practice for 14,000 hours and still suck? You know, it it, it it's it, I don't know. It to me the ten thousand hours one came dangerously close to being a very, very, very well done parody of a Malcolm Gladwell essay. You know, argument. Yeah, to- totally. Um, it but but you know, it, it, my problem is that seriously, I do think he's a good writer. the 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 frustrating part is that he when he says something. And I don't disagree with what he's saying, and what he's saying makes a lot of sense. But if you ever asked him to show his math, I think there would be a lot of problems. And the problem is, if you're a science, if you're ostensibly a science or social sciences writer, I think you have an obligation to the the, the source material. And I just I'm not. My friends who are statisticians and scientists uh, have have made it clear that he doesn't always do his math. Yeah, and the ten thousand hours thing is is just like my. It just doesn't make sense to me, and it's like he holds up the Beatles as an example because they played a lot of you know played nightly gigs in some shithole bar in Germany mm-hmm. or something like that. But every band plays nightly gigs in shithole bars all That's around what I'm the saying. world. Yeah, right? it, you know what I mean. Like uh, there was something about that, and like the example of the Beatles, and maybe I'm you know I'm just telling you Merlin what you want to hear but I don't know there was something about that where it made it sound like like the Beatles had this one weird thing that was different from everybody else which is that they played every night in a shitty bar and it's like no well, he's got he's got a real I think he has a reality distortion field that gives Steve a run for his money because when you're reading what he's writing you're like yes yes you're yeah. pumping your fist and he he is the original turns out guy well, it turns out that 10,000 hours is a magic number. Well, okay. Well, how did it turn out that way? What, 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 you know, the, the, you take something that's conventional wisdom. It's this basic problem of somebody who has a bachelor's degree, like having something that they can bring up at a cocktail party that makes them seem like they're, like they've got a little more information than somebody else. And, and, you know, and it's this entire culture of needing to undo, you know, the conventional wisdom on things by showing you something surprisingly obvious. That nobody else got, and you know the, the people who do the actual grinding work that leads to important scientific discoveries and social science discoveries, the grinding work behind that does not lead to that many turns out things unless you really cherry pick from the information that's available. It's it just it doesn't happen, and and the problem is now that's begun to poison the well. There are a lot of places now where you've got to have turns out results. You got to write something, you got to publish something that's going to show up on some New York Times blog. Because that's that's where the attention is now, you know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know enough to say, but I, I just for years it's something that's needled me. I I'm sorry to have to explain my own joke, but 
you know, with him and, and later with Jonah Lehrer and, and folks like that, there's a guy, oh God, there's a guy on Morning Edition right now who's, who, who, who has me ready to just shoot my radio. He's, he's got all kinds of surprising results from the field of social science every week. And it's, any, it's just crazy. Like if, you know, you think about what your area of expertise is, what your background is, and what you know well, what you know is hard and difficult about a discipline. I feel like there aren't anybody who comes up to say, anybody with the actual background that I don't have in science and the social sciences, any of these natural sciences, any of these things, the people who come up and say, you know what, um, this is really kind of oversimplified. They get accused of having sour grapes because the the great and wonderful, everybody's envious of Malcolm Gladwell and his his successes. And then he starts, you know, kind of poo-pooing that stuff by saying, you know, that he he's writing for a popular audience and stuff like that. But like to me, if you're not getting the – I am not a scientist. Like I need somebody to get this stuff right for me. You know what I mean? And and I feel like it's it's – I just – something goes off and like I get this radar that goes off that something's not completely right. And I don't know. You don't get that. I do get it. You're a very critical reader. So I, I, I'm surprised that you're not uh, – turns out well, you're not <laughs> – I, I don't know. It's It's – I'm just going to say this. I'm, I've, I've made that joke so many times in the last probably three years, but I'm just going to say to everybody out there, start listening for the phrase turns out when you hear somebody say something because that's something that is a real super lazy way to act like somebody just saw something that you are going to be surprised because you didn't see it first. And then listen for how they show you what that turns out to be different from and have them show their math. Right. There and is I, something where there's a, a psychological appeal of a counterintuitive fact i i am totally susceptible to that i always have been we all are because yeah. everybody loves that like you know like it turns out that that the best way to get a to fall into a depression is to win the lottery oh that's delicious because it's the opposite of what you thought you right. know uh whereas you know but i feel and i feel like that that it's it's there's a certain it's like a very advanced way of doing uh here's seven ways to uh mm-hmm. you know lose seven pounds in like seven hours yeah it's a very advanced Listicles. form of that yeah because it just suckers you but in, i mean it's you know? it, it becomes it becomes a kind of like intellectual m&ms though where people really do get, I think, a little bit addicted to it because it is really enjoyable to read about. I think about all the stuff that got me really charged up, you know, behind the scenes stuff over the years, reading the book of lists and things like that. Those sorts of books always fascinated me, learning things like rules of thumb and things that, oh, you'd be surprised that this system that most people look at as being incredibly complex and difficult and full of footnotes and asterisks can actually be 80% reduced to this one rule of thumb. Like when you discover something like that, it, it is really illuminating and you go, oh my gosh, maybe the world is not as complicated as it seems. Or maybe, turns out, it's complicated in ways we didn't expect. How the Beatles created the White Album using this one secret old trick, <laughs> right? And it's like in a little you know box underneath the article that you just read on some website that runs Taboola ads. <laughs> I wish you would have me back to talk about this when I'm better prepared and I've eaten. Ah, oh, I don't want it. I don't mean to sound short. I, I need. To, I just need to eat, or I'm going to get a headache. Oh no, I got. And you. it's really good to talk to you. Yeah, I, I I finish these podcasts ready to pass out. Oh, I know. I feel like I, it's hard work. It is. 
<laughs> okay. Talk to you soon. Best of your family. You know, all right. You know, my, my mom's dad, my grandfather, you know what he was? What? He was a coal miner. <laughs> he, he died of black lung. This is, I'm two generations apart from a man who whose parents spoke no English, Ukrainian immigrants. He spent his entire working career in coal mines Ugh. and then died at 72 of black lung. And I just told you, and I actually wasn't being ironic. I just told you that what we just did was hard work. I take naps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I take naps. Yeah. I need a nap from my podcasting. Ugh. Okay. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.